Well, good morning. I'm Ryan White. I'm the pastor here at Elam, and it is a joy to be again opening up God's Word with you today. So if you have a Bible, uh, we are going to be in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, We are in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to take a bit of a bigger bite than we did last week. We just started our series last week, so if uh, you missed it, I encourage you to hop on YouTube, download the podcast, join us as we go on this journey. But we just did two verses last week. We didn't even get to meet Daniel and his friends, and today we will, so I'm actually really excited. Uh, But last week we... We stepped into this season of disorientation that God's people were experiencing. We heard all about the Israelite kingdom of Judah's conquest. They were conquered by the Babylonians, and and God's people entered this 70-year exile in the pagan nation of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And we got to kind of spend some time last Sunday hearing from the prophet Jeremiah because God wants to, he wanted to give a, ooh, a message of encouragement and insight and invitation. He was trying to, to frame for his displaced people what life in exile was going to be all about and, and what hope and what invitation he had for them in that season. And we, we heard these words from God. God said, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And we discovered that in in disorienting times we all have this choice to make. We can withdraw in despair in hard times and kind of wall ourselves off from the world. We can war against our our changing circumstances, just angry and frustrated and, and upset. We can let our distinctiveness as God's people kind of wash out as we just kind of fade into the image of the culture. Or we can reorient in disorienting times and, and witness for God in this new time and place. And that's really what God is inviting us to at the very outset of this journey. He says, hey, if you find yourself in exile, I have sent you there and I've, I've called you to be my witnesses, voices and people who represent me in these crazy storm seasons of life. Now that's easier said than done, Right? I stumbled upon a proverb in my Bible reading this week that says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love. But in reality, a faithful man, who can find? When challenges come and the costs get real, will you actually trust God and embrace this invitation to be his witness in the days of your exile? 
I had someone say to me this week, I believe in God. I just don't believe God. I believe in him. I don't believe that he'll be who he says he'll be. And Daniel's here to say, believe him. You can trust him. I've titled this morning's message, Faith and Faithfulness When There Is No Path. And it's a reference to one of my favorite lines of poetry from the Spanish poet Antonio Machado. And I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but this is the line. Caminante no hay camino, se hace camino al andar. Can anyone translate that for us? Yes. Walker, there's no path. Yes, you make the path as you walk. I, I like to say, yeah, good job. Thank you, Daisy. Traveler, there is no path. The path is forged as you walk. And I love that because sometimes life surprises you. You think that your life is laid out before you like this well-marked road, and all you have to do is kind of follow it. But then all of a sudden, the wilderness comes in in a blink of the eye, and the, the path gets swallowed up. The scenery has changed, and you've lost your bearings, and you have to figure out how to move forward when no path presents itself. And as we'll see, this is exactly what happens to Daniel and his friends. They have to learn how to have faith and practice faithfulness when the path disappears. And I really think that their encouragement to us is this. Forget the path, follow the guide. He will establish your steps. The path will be forged as you walk with him. Or as Psalm 37 says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I want us to meet our protagonists, our main characters, and, and watch as the path that they envision for their life just gets absolutely obliterated. So Daniel chapter 1, we'll start at the beginning, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. 
The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuch gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So there's a lot going on here. So let's kind of get our bearings. Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they are carried off to Babylon. They're in that first wave of deportations from Judah. You see, Judah's king, Jehoiakim, the guy we see at the beginning, he had been an ally, a a vassal of the Egyptian pharaoh, Necho. And Necho and his Assyrian allies had just been crushed and demolished by the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish. And as the Babylonians are coming home, they, they plunder the temple, they take royal hostages because they want to secure Judah's allegiance Now, not to Egypt, but to them as the new kind of sheriff in the region. But it doesn't work, as we heard last week. And rebellion continues, and Judah will be annihilated. But we have to remember, as we meet these four guys, that they were princes in Judah, basically. They had come of age during King Josiah's religious reforms when when the last kind of good king was trying to coax God's people back to the Lord, away from their waywardness, their their injustice, and their idolatry, and back to the Lord. And we hear about these four young men that they were without blemish. They were set apart. They were ready for God's service. They're young. They're handsome. They're intelligent. They're educated. They're They're poised, they're gifted, they're wise beyond their years. We're meeting the future leaders of their kingdom. But their kingdom is now no more. The promising path that lay in front of them just evaporates right before their eyes. And now, instead of a future marked by promise their presence becomes dominated by loss. And really, it's this like litany of losses. The losses just pile up in these few short verses. They've already lost their country and their king and their temple. They've lost community and surely family members in the conquest Their freedom is taken away from them, and and Babylon's trying to systematically strip away their Israelite identities. Their history and their culture is suppressed. Their language and their heritage is assaulted. They're enrolled in the University of Babylon, and they're indoctrinated into just a new Ideology, a new religion, a new way of seeing the world. They're forced to master new languages, Akkadian and Sumerian and Aramaic. 
and to become experts in Babylonian learning, which is their literature and mythology, their history and politics, mathematics, medicine, astronomy. But it's actually even more than that. They are compelled to descend deep in the darkness and they're trained in everything kind of arcane and occult. They have to take courses in astrology and incantation and divination and exorcism and dream interpretation and the reading of omens and spell casting and, and dark magic. The Babylonians are trying to reprogram them, to cut them off from their past and to, to make them Babylonians, mind, body, and soul. And the violations get even more intimate. And so I'm trying to figure out a way to put this delicately. Uh, to stand in the king's palace means to serve in the royal administration. That's the uh, advisors, the sages, the scribes, the provincial governors, the kind of different administrators and attendants. And everyone who serves in the king's palace in the bureaucracy are eunuchs. And in the ancient world... uh, Government work went hand in hand with being a eunuch because of your proximity to the king's harem. There can be no threat to kind of the royal heirs and and their legitimacy. So it's only folks that are physically unable to procreate that are allowed within the confines of the palace. And it was also thought that you can't have someone advancing a family agenda, so If everyone that's serving is a eunuch, their family line ends with them. So there's kind of no under the current agendas to wrestle with or to deal with. So you have these young, virile men in their teens and their 20s, and the the Babylonians strip them of their sexuality, their self-respect, any chance at marriage or family. And this is something that God's people so rejected that to discourage this practice in Israel, God's law barred eunuchs from the assembly of God's people. So you got to see this for what it is here at the beginning of Daniel. This is physical and spiritual assault. This is Babylon trying to cut off these men's access to their faith community. And they're literally removing the enduring mark of their Jewishness, which was their circumcision. It's cultural genocide. Babylon's trying to ensure that these Israelites had no way back to their old lives and identities. And the final touch was a name change. You see, an ancient thought to change someone's name was to exercise authority over them and to alter their destiny. And these young men, they had beautiful Hebrew names. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Azariah is Yahweh, the God of Israel is my help. 
Mishael, who is like our God? And Hananiah, our God is gracious. See, they're literally bearing God's name. And he is their destiny. And Babylon wants to step in and say, that's not who you are anymore. Babylon is now your destiny. And you're going to bear the names of our gods and goddesses. So they change the names. Daniel becomes, you're no longer a prince of Judah. You are a prince of Marduk, our God. Hananiah, you're under the command of our God, Aku. That's what uh, Shadrach means. You're cut off from grace. No longer God is gracious. You're under the command of Aku. Who is like our God, Aku, Mishael? That is your new name. And Azariah, God is my help. There is no help coming for you. So you best learn to submit to your new slave master. Your name is now the slave of Nebo. Really, it's gross and demonic. And you thought, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. That was a hard word last week. It feels nearly impossible after we discover all these things that these young men have experienced. And then after all the vinegar... Babylon tries to mollify them with honey. They dull their senses with luxury, inviting them to enjoy just the riches and the opulence of the king's palace and and to feast at his table. Do you see the strategy? I love how one biblical scholar puts it. Satan's fundamental goal is always to obliterate our memory of the Lord to re-educate our minds to his way of thinking and to instill in us a sense that all the good things in life come from the world around us and from the satisfaction of the desires of our own flesh. How would you be coping with all this trauma and change and confusion? Caminante no hay camino. How would you reorient in this disorienting time? I think I'd be in a puddle of my own, in my own tears, shaking and sobbing on the ground. Many a man proclaims his steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find... But it's at this point that Daniel has something to teach us. This is his hard-won wisdom. He says, to faithfully reorient in disorienting times, we, as God's witnesses in Babylon, we must learn to both engage and resist. Forget the path, follow the guide. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked 
the chief of the eunuchs, to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the stewards who the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Engage and resist. It's fascinating to me where Daniel gives ground and where he chooses to take a stand. You see, Daniel engages the moment. He knows that God has sent him into exile to be a blessing. So he doesn't balk at the re-education. He's confident that all truth is God's truth and that God's spirit can help him discern the wheat from the chaff and to preserve his perspective, even in the midst of all of this pagan learning. And Daniel engages the challenge He doesn't resist being drafted into the king's service. He's trusting that if God brought me here, he must have known this meant being made a eunuch, even if I didn't know this. So despite all the hardship, despite all the change, he's willing to engage the season and the assignment that the Lord has given him because he trusts that the Lord is with him. Daniel engages the Lord. Now, you have to know he's taking a leap of faith. There's no visible path back to God. It's, this is a spiritual shot in the dark. Jeremiah's letter hasn't arrived yet. So far, Daniel has no positive indication that God is still there, that he still accepts him, that he still recognizes him as his own. Daniel's far from God's domain. He's, he's cut off from God's temple. By the strict letter of the law, he's barred forever from the assembly of God's people. He carries a pagan name. He's been forcibly alienated from every marker of his faith and his culture. Can God even see him there? Or has he been lost in the dark? But Daniel must have recalled what David prayed in Psalm 139. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to you. I can't see you, God. I can't find the path, but I trust you, my guide. You are with me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And in a quiet way, God responds. Verse 
And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This man who is charged with his brainwashing and his conversion shows Daniel mercy because the Lord softens his heart. So Daniel engaged the moment. He engaged the challenge. He engaged the Lord, but he also knew when to resist And his first act of resistance is seen in how he and his friends handle their new names. And I love this little detail. I studied this a hundred times and never caught this until this time around. So Daniel's the author of this book, and he intentionally misspells each of their Babylonian names. For example, it should say Abed-Nebo, Abed, Abed is the Hebrew word for slave, and Nebo was the God's name. It doesn't say Abed Nebo. What's it say? Abed Nego. He's corrupting it. It's subtle and quiet, but it's spiritual defiance. He is going to refuse to ever write the Babylonian God's names correctly. And I imagine he mispronounces it too saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not a native speaker. I have a thick accent. But he will not bear the names of these pagan deities. And it seems that these guys will continue to use their names with one another. Daniel's saying, I have a dual identity now, sure, but I will never forsake or forget my true identity as a bearer of God's name. I might be a Babylonian court official, but I'm also an Israelite whose judge is the Lord. So that's his first act of defiance and resistance. His second act comes in the context of food. Why? Now, Before we get into it, I need for us to acknowledge something. Sometimes we come to Scripture thinking that we understand perfectly what it's trying to say. There's no humility in us. We think that no translation is required. We fail to remember that this was a text written in a foreign language to an ancient audience. And while it was written for us, it is for our benefit as 21st century people. It was not written to us. And if we forget this, we can kind of ignorantly bring our biases into the text and we will kind of twist it to say something that it was never intended to say. For example, does this passage preach a plant-based gospel? Is this the secret? Mm, That's really good. So, how many of you know the name LeBron James? Yes, good, good. He's arguably one of the three greatest basketball players of all time. He's up there with Michael Jordan and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he is one of my favorite NBA villains to root against. I'm a Warriors fan. Go Warriors. 
enjoy vacation, LeBron. <laughs> and one of his, the most impressive things about James is it's not just his basketball brilliance. It's not just his just freak athleticism and gifts. It's really his longevity. He has been playing at an elite level longer than anyone. And one of his secrets to such great career longevity is that late in his career, he switched to a plant-based diet. So we have stories like that rolling around in our psyches. And we come to this text and we think, wow, this must be one of God's secrets. We were meant to run on plants. We're supposed to be vegetable-powered. And if if I munch on veggies 24-7, I will look like LeBron physically and spiritually. I'll have whatever the faith equivalent of the six-pack abs and the rippling muscles are. It was veggies. That was it. (sighs) And yes, you should eat more vegetables. (laughs) And I really enjoyed putting a big X over LeBron. Uh, But you shouldn't eat more vegetables because the Bible tells you so. This text is about something else entirely. Babylon is saying, find your nourishment in the king's food. Now, the king's food refers to those regular rations that all of the king's dependents received. They get this regular daily portion of milled grain and oil and wine. And the king's table would be opened up to them. And and the Babylonian diet, it does contain all of these non-kosher meats from Animals that the Jews considered unclean and unacceptable from them to eat. And also all of the food that's available to them, this is the meat, the grain, the veggies, everything, has all been first offered up in gratitude to Babylonian deities before it's ever presented to the folks who are eating it. So it's going to be nearly impossible for Daniel to keep a Jewish diet in Babylon. It's one more of those things that has been taken away. But God's people have always been distinct, set apart from their neighbors in the way they eat. And the word translated vegetables here, it doesn't actually mean radishes and eggplant, cucumber and bell pepper, quinoa, all the stuff that you really need if you're going to be plant-based. Again, eat more vegetables, but not because the Bible tells you so. The Hebrew word here is actually better translated fodder or seeds. This isn't innately nutritious food or even food meant for human consumption. This is what they fed the livestock, what they used for planting. So Daniel's not making a rational health decision here. He's quietly resisting being totally assimilated by the forces of Babylon. And again, I'll say this is a spiritual shot in the dark. In blind hope, he's taking a leap towards God. Trying to rebuild 
or to find a new identity from the broken pieces of the old. So he's proclaiming his loyalty to the Lord in one of the only ways left to him. At this critical moment, at the start of this journey, he's preaching to his own soul that his true sustenance and provision and life comes from God alone. He's dependent on God, not Nebuchadnezzar. So he doesn't have some divine word from on high to adopt this diet. But he's preaching to his own soul. This is the only way I can think of, the only thing left to me to cling in loyalty and devotion to my God. And it's a risky gambit. And the chief of the eunuchs knows it. He feels for Daniel. This man was very likely in his, Daniel's position once. But he knows that if Daniel bucks the system and he falls behind his peers, it's going to be the chief's head as well as Daniel's. That's why he proposes that 10-day experiment. It's just like, hey, let's just try this. Just give me a chance. It's a shot in the dark. Let me try. And this is what we read. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all of the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine and they were, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So forget LeBron James. This is not the expected outcome. This is divine grace and supernatural intervention. No one should appear healthier and fatter, which is how they're going to define health, as you're, you're a bigger boy, after 10 days of eating animal feed. Pure and simple, this is God honoring Daniel's leap of faith and his pledge of loyalty. So Daniel and his friends, they are seeking to maintain their faithfulness to God while working within the Babylonian system, not against it. They, they seek permission for this personalized diet, for this quiet act of resistance. That's because as God's witnesses in Babylon, they're, they're learning when to engage and when to resist, when to draw the line And preserve some of their distinctiveness so that they're not totally squeezed into the Babylonian mold. And God responds by giving more grace. As for these four yous, this is verse 17, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. They're in their oral exams. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. They enter that kind of cabinet, that group of advisors. 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you see what God's doing here in this passage? God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch. God moved so that they might appear better in better health and, and fatter in flesh. I love that phrase. Than all the youths who ate the king's food. He gave them learning and skill and wisdom and understanding. God acted so that they would be found head and shoulders above all of their peers. What a testimony of God's grace. The spirit of Babylon wants to topple you, train you, and tempt you. But the spirit of God sends you and strengthens you and sustains you in your days of exile. And Daniel and his friends say, resist and engage. I love how Daniel and his friends practice faith and faithfulness when they see no path forward. They forget about finding the path. They just cling to the guide instead. So in your own disorienting times, in our own day and age, what will it look like for you to remain faithful to your God-given identity? How is God inviting you to demonstrate your dependence and your loyalty in our days of exile? Now, it probably won't mean going plant-based. You can, but again, don't take that message from this passage. But it will look like building into your daily routines these markers, these rhythms, these habits and reminders of our constant dependence upon God for all the good things in our lives. I think it will mean quietly resisting the tug of our culture that wants to suck us in and, and subsume us into its patterns and priorities and ways of thinking. So what's your stand how will you cling to your true name and garble the identity Babylon wants to place on you? How will you remember that your provision and your wisdom and that your power comes from God alone? Think really practically. Daniel got really practical. He changed the way he Eight, so that this was front and center as he began this journey. What are these practical stands or habits that the Lord might be calling us to as we cling to him in disorienting times? We talked about prayer and praise at the beginning. I think that's one of them. Gratitude, thanksgiving, keeping a record of 
the way that God has come through and been faithful in good ways and in big ways and in small ways where we, we teach ourselves to recognize and commemorate the grace that we're experiencing. I think that's one of the ways that we can build that in. Christians say grace at meals because they were building that in. Yes, maybe my own hands have earned this, but really it was God who brought this into my life. Now it's a rote thing that we do without thinking. But at one point it was a tangible reminder that before food passes my lips, I'm going to acknowledge where it came from. Maybe some of this means other things that are are part of kind of Christian rhythms. Practicing a day of rest. Sure, that's good, but realize what it's saying. It's saying that... I'm going to take a tangible chunk of my week and I'm going to rest in God and trust not in my own performance. I'm going to turn off because I know that what's really important is God at work in me. God fighting my battles. One more day of work ain't going to save me. It is God who provides and rescues and saves. Things like Lifestyles of simplicity. We've got, you know, consumerism and technology that are saying, you need us, 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 you need us. And sometimes we have to say, you know what? I'm not accepting that. I'm making this stand. And I'm choosing to say, I'm in this culture, but these are the lines that it can't cross. There's no tech in my bedroom. That's one of the things that Brown and I have switched this year. And it's crazy because it's almost like I hear my phone calling from the other room. Look at me. Look at me. You can't survive without me. It's like, no, demon. (laughs) I'm still detoxing. (laughs) Even fasting, right? Fasting, again, is not... we. Read LeBron too much into our Bible. God doesn't say fast because I want you to have abs. He's saying sometimes you need to say no to sometimes some of the pleasures in this life. To say yes to these greater treasures in God. So there's a day where I'm going to skip lunch and dig into prayer and the word. Not because I'm not hungry, Because I need to train my soul that that's not what you need. That's what you need. Pressing into prayer and communion, stilling the noise of Babylon and letting God speak your true identity and destiny over you. God says, I'm sending you into disorienting, crazy times. I'm sending you into a changing world to be my blessing but you need to learn when to engage and when to resist. Because don't let them smush you into the culture's mold. Be my witnesses. And it's going to require us to do some discernment. Lord, what are the stands that you're inviting me to take? It's going to be different for the person sitting next to you, sitting next to you. But there's things where we're going to say, you know what? 
I need to do this to cling to the guide. This thing's getting its hooks in me too much. I need to draw a line, make a stand. It doesn't say I have to put my smartphone in the box at night, but that's something that I'm sensing the Spirit is saying, hey, do that because it's getting too much into your life. So you're going to have to spend some time wrestling with this, going back to those two questions. What will it look like for you to remain faithful to your God-given identity? How is God inviting you to demonstrate to yourself, to your family, to the watching world, your dependence and loyalty on him in these days of exile? So let me pray for us. Dear God, I... I'm so just reminded that this was your journey too. You uh, were exiled from divinity. You came down and took on our flesh. You spent a lifetime in, in pagan lands. And you were a witness for the Lord. You are an agent of blessing. You were among us broken sinners. You ate with the undesirable. You were not afraid of of being tainted by our corruption. You engaged. But you also resisted. You were faithful. To your father. You committed to do nothing that your father did not call good. You snuck off and you prayed and you waited on him. And you sacrificed for us. You pursued the path the Lord God put before you all the way to the cross. And we are so grateful that you did because it is our salvation. God, may we follow you. We lose track of the path in this life, but we cling to you. Give us the strength and the courage to follow to remember our true name as your beloved sons and daughters, to walk in your way of life as we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.